As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keene and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. We're just seeing one narrative after another torpedoed in actuality because of all of the different myriad factors that are playing into this. It is mind-spinning. Let's try and come up with a theory with Mandy Zhu, Vice President, <laughs> Global Head of Derivative Markets Intelligence over at Cibo Markets. Mandy, good morning to you. Good morning. I'll take a stab at the, the narrative luck. ping-pong. Or pickleball or whatever yeah, Brammer exactly. wants to call it. Okay. <laughs> pickleball. Max Kettner, HSBC, said this morning, Lisa quoted it, I'll cite it right now. The move index is the new risky asset fear gauge. What would you say back to that? So certainly bond volatility is the highest across asset classes right now, but I don't think it is the only measure that investors are looking at. And obviously, I'm not just saying that because I work for the SIBO, but I would say the VIX index, more so than any other, is what traders have up on their screen. But to be fair, you know, I think right now we need to look across multiple asset classes, rates, equities, credit, right? We recently launched the credit VIX indices to give investors a better gauge to measure credit volatility. All of these are important asset classes to watch for as we kind of go into the potential end of cycle, you know, as we talk about recession versus soft landing. Is there anything about the price action and moves we saw last week that would give you some indication as to whether it's sustainable or not? So, to me, the price action of the past, not just last week, but the past two months has been extremely telling in terms of what the pain points are in people's portfolio. And it's not to the downside, right? The pullback that we saw in September and October were very, very orderly. And that's because coming into the fall, the, con- the consensus um, investor expectation was for a pullback. And what you really saw the pain was last week in the snapback rally, right? We saw people actually scramble for that upside um, because they weren't positioned for it. So if you look at, for example, S&P put call ratio hit almost a one-year low as people were kind of buying those upside calls to really get that upside exposure that they don't have in their portfolio. I love this, by the way, that the pain trade is and things do too well and that people got knocked out because there was a rally. Well, I mean, this is sort of where we are in this moment of upside down and downside up. But my question to you is, have we washed that out? Are we done with the positioning that causes the pain trade to be further upside? I don't think so. I think, the, again, we talked about the narrative ping pong, but I do think the consensus, and even though economists have shifted to you know, soft landing, I think if you talk to investors, everyone is still so bearish. And the positioning, to me, it's going to take longer to really wash out than what we saw last week. And that's why we're seeing that durable demand for those upside calls in the S&P. When we talk about upside, yes. are we talking big tech upside? That that basically is what people have not loved because they've believed that higher yields might take away some of that valuation that people are being forced to buy those once again. I think part of it, um, there certainly has been, I think one of the distinguishing features of this year's um, 
uh, price action has been the incredible sector dispersion. And we talked about the narrative ping pong, the ping pong between sector leadership, right? Last year, tech down 40, this year tech up you know, 30, 40%. That changing sector leadership, that high dispersion in the market is part of the reason why volatility in the equity market at the index level has been so muted. It's because of those wild swings that we're seeing at the sector and, and the stock level. How correlated have the bond and stock moves been? In other words, <laughs> is there just a direct read through lower yields, stocks rally, higher yields, stocks meander because people aren't positioned in them too much? So if we zoom out from just the past week and look at over the past year, it's been incredibly unstable. So that's, I think, the key feature is the equity bond correlation has not normalized to what people tip, um, are used to. And because of that instability, I think, is one of the reasons we're seeing more and more people gravitate toward equity-specific hedges, so options, right? Because if fixed income is no longer diversifying your equity risk in your portfolio, you need to look at more specific hedges. So, you know, buying those S&P puts or, or other types of hedges, um, I think that's kind of been the trend. And that's why, you know, option volumes have been hitting record highs um, all year. A note that just caught my eye from City, Andrew Honhorst, he said, soft patch, not soft lending. There's a difference. He says, rather than a steady slowing in job growth and inflation, our near-term projections suggest a temporary soft patch. Elevated inflation is likely to be more evident in upcoming data. Last week's re-loosening of financial conditions also argues, in his eyes, against the moderation and activity and inflation. Mandy, does that argue that we should be much more nimble as we work through this. Lisa kind of mentioned this, and we were quite snarky about it earlier on in the program. (laughs) It's difficult to make projections for the next 12 months. You can't cling to a theory at the moment when everything seems to change. It's painful in bonds. You'll get whipsawed in one direction, and the next week, whipsawed in the other. Does that argue to be nimble? And what does that look like from your perspective? Yeah, so I alluded to earlier. So absolutely, the heightened macro uncertainty means investors do need to be nimble. And the way they're doing that is through using options, right? And the way I like to explain is, if there's no uncertainty and you know stocks are going up, you just buy the underlying, right? Just You just buy the Delta One you know, instrument. It's when you're uncertain, when you want to find risk reward, right? You want to know what you're at, uh, where you're at risk of losing if you're wrong. That argues for using options, right? If you buy a call option, you know going into the trade, the max that you can lose is a premium paid. I think that's why, you know, again, in this uncertain macro environment, even though it hasn't translated into higher levels of VIX, VIX being 30-day measure of uncertainty, that long-term uncertainty has definitely led to more and more people using options to kind of define that risk-reward to help manage that portfolio volatility. You touched on it there just slightly. Yes. When you talk about volume and options, are we yes. talking about zero day to expiry? No, no, no. It's, 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 so people often think, okay, it's, it's all, everything's coming from zero day to expiry options. Volume across all tenors are, are growing higher, but obviously zero day has been the fastest um, growing segment. You've made the argument that's not something we should worry about. No, and because it's balanced. So people who make the argument that zero day options are what's driving the market, they look at the gross volume, the notional volume, and they say, well, look, it's 500 billion a day. Of course, that's what's driving the market. But if 50% of that is buy, 50% of the customer selling, then there's net zero impact, right? So the balance of that trading matters. And what we see is that it's incredibly balanced. And because that's the case, there's actually very minimal market disruption. Mandy, this was great. Always is Mandy Zhu of SIBO. Mandy, thank you. Thank you. 
Michael O'Leary with us around the table, the Ryanair CEO. Michael, I wish people could see your face as Ed Bastian was speaking, just to get some reaction. <laughs> it's good to see you. Good morning. It's great to be here, John, Lisa. Good to talk to you again. Well, thank you, buddy. You've had earnings out this morning. We've been talking about this dividend of 400 million euros. We've got to talk about this relationship with Boeing. I want to share a couple of quotes with you yep. and then try and get some clarity. So you said in the last week, if anything gets getting worse, I would have been reasonably confident up until about a month ago that we'd get 57 aircraft by the end of June. I'm not confident. We heard from your CFO this morning, said the worst case scenario is that we'll end up with growth of 47 aircraft next summer instead of 57. Help me understand where things are. What did you want and what do you think you're going to get? Yeah, I mean, in our case, Boeing are contracted to deliver us 57 aircraft by the end of April 24. In other words, 57 additional aircraft for summer 24. At the moment, that has slipped by the spirit production issues in Wichita, Boeing's own production issues in Seattle. Uh, I think now it looks like we'll get, they'll leave us maybe 10 short by about the end of June. We're hopeful we get 45, 50 aircraft by the end of June. We've said to Boeing, we're not taking planes in July and August because, frankly, we're too busy. Um, but we're reasonably hopeful that we'll get 45, 50 aircraft from. They will leave us short. I think that's inevitable at this point in time, uh, which means we'll have slightly slower growth next summer. But we'll still add 45 aircraft. It'll still be enough to, to enable us to grow traffic from 183 million passengers this year to just over 200 million passengers. Is there a number year. you have in mind whereby you would have to cut capacity for next summer? I, there isn't. I mean, we haven't yet announced what the capacity will be next summer. As we said this morning, we have 90% of our summer 24 capacity already on sale, strong forward bookings, good pricing. But we can't commit to the last 10% until we get a better picture from Boeing. I speak weekly with Dave Calhoun. I think he's doing a good job in difficult circumstances. I have less faith in the management in Seattle, uh, but I think, you know, we're working closely with them. We have our own people in Seattle. We have our own people in Spirit and Wichita, and anything we can do to expedite these deliveries will do because growth is so strong in Europe. What is it about the management in Seattle? What are they getting wrong? I think there isn't enough focus there on a daily basis of how do we get with these aircraft out. Everybody is kind of wringing their hands, blaming Wichita. You know, a lot of the issues are in Seattle as well. They need a more crisis. I would like to see greater crisis management in Seattle um, and greater focus on quality control. Uh, if you, you know, I don't understand how Wichita, Spirit and Wichita are able to have this succession of, man- of, of production problems if Boeing's quality control was up to speed. Do you have options? Options in terms of? What do you do if you don't want to work with Boeing anymore? I don't know. No, let's agree. We want to work with Boeing. We're Boeing's biggest customer by a mile in Europe. Uh, we're a committed Boeing customer. Now, I would buy Airbus aircraft if they were 5% cheaper per seat than Boeing. But Boeing continue to beat Airbus on pricing. The 737 MAX is a phenomenal aircraft. Like we've, we now, This summer, we've flown 125 of the MAX 8 aircraft. We're carrying 4% more passengers, but burning 16% less fuel. You know, they're transformative in terms of the engine and aircraft efficiency. We've ordered 300 MAX 10s, which will allow us to carry 228 pa- passengers per flight and burn 20% less fuel. So they're making great aircraft. It's just they're not making them on time or delivering them in time. Is it fair to say, though, this is a relationship you're stuck with regardless of what it delivers next year? I mean, yes. You know, we're committed to Boeing. If you look around the world, the aircraft manufacturers, I mean, Airbus are no better than Boeing at the moment. Airbus are way behind on their deliveries, too. You have the Pratt & Whitney engine which is going to be a real crisis next summer across the A320 fleet in Europe. You know, the Pratt & Whitney engine is going to ground a significant number of Airbus aircraft next summer. So all of the aircraft manufacturers are challenged. We're a very proud Boeing customer. I think Boeing will get its act together. It's just taking a bit longer than we had originally hoped. In the meantime, how far can you jack up prices if capacity is constrained? 
I mean, I think that the real issue for Elise is not how much will we jack up prices, how much will Lufthansa, Air France, IAG or BA keep jacking up prices? And the answer is a lot. You know, uh, Eurocontrol estimate this summer, Europe's operated about 94% of pre-COVID capacity. That includes us growing by 25%. So take Ryanair away. Europe's still at less than 90% of pre-COVID capacity. That's not changing next year. The aircraft manufacturers are delivering aircraft late. The Pratt & Whitney's will mean 5-10% of the Airbus fleet will be grounded. And consolidation, Lufthansa will buy Alitalia, somebody else will buy TAP, and there'll be even less capacity on offer. Okay, so this is good news for you because you don't have to uh, really have to try too hard hard to be the lowest cost aircraft while still raising prices. How much are you yeah. going to raise prices next year? We're price passive, load factor active. I think what's happening is how much, if Lufthansa, Air France, KLM will drive up fares, I, I think by a double digit number next year, it'll send even more people in the direction of Ryanair. People want to keep flying, families want to go on holidays. They just don't want to pay Lufthansa's outrageous prices. So I think fares that next year, I mean, my operating assumption is fares will go up by a low double digit percentage again through the summer 24 to be the third year in a row, third summer in a row, we'll see double-digit fare increases in Europe. This is the first year, that, the first time that you're initiating a dividend. Yep. It's a 400-pound dividend. It is the first time. Does this mean that you have nothing else to do with that money? Essentially, yes. You know, we, I mean, it's not the first time we've done dividends. We've done special dividends and share buybacks. We've done about seven billion in share buybacks and special dividends. But you know, we're clearly generating a lot of cash at the moment. We've paid down about two billion in debt. We're down to our last two billion in bond debt. We'll pay that down over the next three years, and we're generating more cash that we know what to do with. We have specific requirements. Firstly, was to uh, do pay increases for our people who worked with us during COVID. Secondly, was to pay down the bonds, and thirdly, is to fund. Uh, aircraft deliveries, but we're running out of the existing order. We take the last aircraft in December 2024. The first of the MAX 10s doesn't arrive till January 27. So we're looking into two or three years where we have effectively very little uses for cash. And I think it's a commitment on our part. We'll return to shareholders. We won't uh, squander it the way many other airlines do in M&A or buying hotels or whatever, or or as Delta would do, giving monstrous pay increases to its pilots over the next four or five years. Uh, we need to keep our costs low, keep our efficiency high, and keep passing on unbeatable airfares to our customers. Do you think shareholders then can expect more of the same over the next few years? I think so. As long as trading continues, you know, who knows what's going to happen in Ukraine or in the Middle East, but as long as we get a reasonable wind on uh, trading, then I think we will continue to be very cash generative and we will return large amounts of cash to shareholders. It's hard to know what is going to happen in Ukraine, in the Middle East. I don't expect you to give us a projection. I do want to understand, though, are you seeing things slow down in any way, shape or form when you start to see these things escalate? Anything at all? No, I mean, well, we saw the initial, when, we, when Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, 22 or three, I can't remember, you know, there was a, a sudden downturn in all of our traffic into Poland, Romania, those countries. It recovered after two or three weeks. We've had to suspend, we're suspending all flights. We've about 30 flights a day into Tel Aviv. Uh, they've been suspended until Christmas. Uh, so we do want to see those, uh, those uh, scenarios resolve themselves. But the ultimate underlying trend across Europe, we've locked up everybody for two years of COVID. They all want to go back traveling. Families want to go on holidays. We've just completed the October midterm break. We were still full. Um, And I think what people want is to travel more, but there's only 90% of the pre-COVID capacity. So in Europe, you've constrained capacity. 
enormous demand, and that is resulting in very strong pricing, not just for Ryanair, but for all of the airlines. Are you noticing any trade down? I hate to describe it as trade down from BA to, to Ryanair, but are you noticing anything like that? Not at the moment. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think it's inevitable if the next year or two, if consumers are under pressure, I think, you know, you'll see the little and Aldi's of the supermarkets, IKEA will do very well and Ryanair will do very well. So what about using some of the cash to make the experience nicer for people who might be frustrated with the At least it'd be impossible to make the experience on Ryanair any nicer. You know, new aircraft, on-time flights, the fewest cancellations of any airline in Europe. I mean, I don't understand why people pay such ridiculous airfares for a horrendous experience on Lufthansa who lose your bag, miss your connection. On Ryanair, it's efficient, it's cheap, it's on time, and it is beloved like a man that might by 184 million people. Once upon a time. Yeah, did, you? <laughs> did you lose luggage? I had to do, I ran on a road show a year ago. I had to fly from Frankfurt to Zurich, which is only about a one and a half hour flight. Sure. Uh, they stung me for 900 euros uh, one way in economy. And I was sitting at the back in the middle seat in front of the toilet on an Edelweiss A320. I mean, 700 euros. I could fly all year round on Ryanair for 700 euros. Michael, it's good to see you. Thanks Great for joining John, us. Lisa, thanks Fantastic. Thank That's you always. so much. Great to see you. Michael O'Leary there, the Ryanair CEO. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Amanda Liner joins us now, head of macro credit research <laughs> at BlackRock. Respond. Amanda, don't worry, we're not going to be talking about that. I do want to talk about supply, if we can start there. We've got $48 billion of three-year notes this week. We've got $40 billion of 10-year notes. We've got some 30-year bonds, $24 billion worth. These are big, big numbers. That's treasury supply. What's happening with credit supply going into year-end? Good morning. Thank you both for having me. Um, so as you know, credit supply had a bit of a flurry of activity in September. It calmed down in October. I do think with this tentative stability in the Treasury market that corporate CFOs and treasurers may look to move ahead before the year-end seasonal slowdown. Um, It will be an important test for the market how this Treasury supply is digested, but um, as we know, the the Treasury Secretary guided us towards the front end of the curve and not so much in duration in in the refunding announcement last week. Um, But I actually think If nothing else, the past several months have shown corporates that this can be very episodic in terms of these windows opening. And so given that we know the maturity walls are coming up, um, I think for corporates, it's better to issue early rather than late. We're expecting a big week in the IG market this week. I think expectations are a little lower in high yield, but I would not be surprised if we surprised to the upside in terms of those expectations, because I think it's just prudent for CFOs. Which speaks to uh, kind of the opportunism that one syndicate desk told me about last week. He messaged me as soon as we saw this rally and he said, 
everyone's trying to come to market. I've gotten 15 phone calls. Everyone's basically lined up. Is this going to be bad with credit spreads widening in this sort of counterintuitive way because yeah. we've got more supply? Yeah. I think, the, I think the appetite is there, and I think we've had such light supply, especially in high yield year to date, and 22 was a record low level, that I think the appetite for, for the market is there. I think where the real risk is, is it that, that lowest quality cohort of the triple C market, that kind of lowest quality rung of high yield, which are triple C issuers. There, I think we've seen some enhanced pressure where it's weak results coupled with refinancing needs have really pressured those capital structures. And even on this swift rally in, in high yield spreads that we've seen over the past few trading sessions, triple C's have rallied, but they've lagged on the way in. And I think it's the market telling you that there's an appetite for a certain quality cohort in the credit market. Um, IG, I think, is there in most market conditions. High yield is a bit more tentative. Um, but for that lowest quality rung, I think it's it's very case-specific case and very idiosyncratic. Are people kind of just pricing in perfection here? Well, with high yield spreads below 400, it's hard to argue that there's much risk premium added into the market at the moment. I think what we're seeing is a lot more focus on selectivity from our credit investors. So um, thinking about asset allocation between high yield and leverage loans, um, sector selection, issuer selection, I think where, where high yield spreads are at the moment, the path of least resistance is probably a little bit wider in terms of choppiness with some of the headline risk ahead of us. Um, but, but again, as we've talked about before, where yields are, it's really difficult to see kind of high yield spreads breaking out in this range of much wider from here because when you every time we've, you know, we tried to reach 440 last week and we kind of snapped back in. And so there is a bit of a tug of war between fundamentals and technicals. And even the most vulnerable fundamental pockets of the market have been the best performer like leverage loans. You mentioned the decision set between loans yes. and say high yield. How far audience understand what goes into making that kind of decision and whether that's changed in the last few weeks? So it, it has changed in the last few weeks for a few reasons. One is if you think we're at the end of the rate hiking cycle, if you think we've seen stability in long-end rates, um, you might think that the bulk of the loan outperformance is behind us at this point. And indeed, that yield pickup that leveraged loans were offering over high-yield bonds has narrowed. Uh, so what we are seeing is a bit more interest, say, even within capital structures of, of investors saying, OK, well, I'm in the loan. Should I rotate into the high-yield bond? Or given the fundamental pressures of this higher for longer rate environment that we're expecting, are loans disproportionately impacted by that because they've been intending it with it for a longer time. Again, we don't view fixed rate bonds as immune from that in many instances. But I do think on the margin, given the strong performance of loans year to date, there is some there is some refocusing on, OK, is the bulk of that loan performance behind just us? Breathe some life into that just a little yes. bit more. We saw a big equity move last week. Yep. If you're looking at a, and I know it's unique and idiosyncratic, but ultimately just give us the 35,000 foot view. <laughs> if you're looking down a capital structure right now, is the bias to be higher or lower in it? Uh, actually, you know, I think the high end of the high yield market has actually outperformed the low end of the IG market. Um, so it's, it's not as clear cut as saying be underweight high yield versus IG. There are a lot of nuances there. I do think for choice, I would prefer to be higher in quality within high yield. In IG, I think moving down into that triple B cohort is a relatively nice place to be. For the most part, the vast majority of those corporates are committed to maintaining investment grade ratings, you are picking up a bit of a, of a, of a spread pickup relative to the highest rate cohort. And I think that's important in this, in this current environment, especially if we don't get a severe downturn in growth. So I don't mean to be overly basic about this, <laughs> but when you take a step back, yeah. I do wonder if we do get coalesce around this higher for longer kind of idea. Yep. Does it make sense that we're not going to get any kind of major default cycle 
either in public credit or in private credit, if we're looking at benchmark rates that are five percentage points higher than when all of these companies were borrowing in bulk not so long ago. It's a, it's a great point, Lisa. So we are seeing a modest uptick in defaults. We're at a, just under 5% in the U.S. when you combine high yield and leverage loans. That's well off the rock bottom levels of 2021 and 2022. Do we break out to the levels that we saw in COVID, eight and a half, nine percent 9%? I think barring a severe downturn, I, I don't see it. Um, part of the reason is that corporates have entered this period in a really strong position. The other part is that the investor appetite to your point, John, is there. And then third, I would say corporates are actually shifting to a more balance sheet friendly posture. So we haven't seen a lot of debt funded M&A. We haven't seen a lot of debt funded share buybacks. They're still investing in CapEx, still investing in debt repayment uh, in terms of uses of cash. But I, I do think corporates do have some discipline. I think the real risk is that if there's a severe downturn in growth coupled with just a capital markets freezing such that these corporates don't have access at any price, I think it's I think it's difficult. As for the private credit point, historically, we look at losses between the two markets and private credit losses have held in better than public credit losses. Part of that is because the enhanced flexibility that those corporates have. We think that holds true, but I think the point remains we're expecting an ongoing normalization higher in losses across all those asset classes. Given, Not extreme, though. Given what we know, where the maturity wall is. Yes. Can you identify what would be the least optimal time to have an economic downturn? And is that what's basically on the horizon now? So I think um, the probably the biggest risk is that if corporates try and time this opportunistically, they let the year end play out. They think the environment will be better in the first half of 2024. And then we have some sort of shock, whether that's geopolitical, unforeseen risk contraction. We're watching bank lending very closely, although that that has actually played out, I think, a bit more benign than we would have thought. Um, but that is the risk. I think that if corporates try to be almost too strategic about the timing and they cut it too close. We saw that in the financial crisis where some corporates were shut out. Um, th so that's why I think if I'm a CFO or a treasurer, better to issue early rather than late. It's Elisa's point. Maybe we get a lot more supply in the coming weeks and months based on what we've seen develop over the last few weeks. Amanda, thank you. Thank you. Always great. Amanda Lynham there of BlackRock. Joining us now is Julie Norman, the co-director of the UCL Center on U.S. Politics. Julie, always wonderful to catch up with you. You've articulated this, the pressure to articulate an endgame, given what's developed over the last couple of weeks. Do you see sense that that pressure is ramping up once again over the weekend? Well, I think it is, John, and very much from the U.S. increasingly on Israel, mostly behind closed doors, but starting a little bit more publicly as well. And this has really been an issue since uh, you know, since the, the after October 7th to try and figure out what would be next for Gaza after an Israeli operation. Um, there are many different options that are considered, but really none of them seem to be uh, very good for either Israelis or for Palestinians. Um, Israelis and Palestinians are not looking for a reoccupation of Gaza. Um, some have floated the idea of the Palestinian Authority, the, the West Bank governance um, having a role in Gaza, but they are very weak, very illegitimate, and also, I think, would not take on that role just yet. And uh, the U.S. is even exploring some options of saying having a multinational transition kind of uh, a group there, some kind of uh, almost like a peacekeeping force. But again, all of these are very tentative options, and I think crucially right now is trying to identify what, what Gaza might look like after this in a way that is, you know, not just a continued down 
downward spiral for both Gazans and Israelis. Julie, as we can all see at the moment, the administration domestically facing pressure from all corners. Julie, from your position, can you identify any kind of success this administration is having, convincing the Israelis of having some kind of humanitarian pause, convincing Israel of changing its approach somehow? Is there any kind of success you can identify? Yeah, John. So I would say right, the U.S. came out very strong in support of Israel. And some in Israel have called this a sort of bear hug, a, a public embrace, but also a private um, restraint and kind of some whispers in the ear. So this has started from the beginning. And I think most importantly, uh, Blinken was pushing for a humanitarian pause over the weekend. That does not look forthcoming at the moment. Um, some areas where they have had some success is starting to get a bit more aid into Gaza. There are currently about 100 trucks now coming into the Gaza Strip per day. Before the invasion, that was about 500 trucks a day, so still much less than is needed, but more than was coming in for several weeks. The other area that they had some temporary success was getting communications reinstated in Gaza, but I understand over the weekend there have been more blackouts, so that seems a bit inconsistent. So I think that pressure for humanitarian pauses will continue. For Israel, I think they see that as perhaps um, halting the offensive and uh, they're halting their overall aim of, of ousting Hamas. But for others, that is just seen as absolutely necessary for both getting aid into the Strip and getting people out. So I think Blinken will keep focusing on that. And I would note Netanyahu suggested that if hostages were released, that might open up some room for a humanitarian pause. So I think we'll see more focus there in the coming days. Julie, what I found more interesting, uh, rather than Tony Blinken going to Israel was all of the other meetings he's had on this particular tour right now. He's in Ankara in Turkey. There's a question over Bill Burns and his relationship with Jordan, the head of CIA, and his tour in the region. What is our sense right now of some of the regional countries and their position, their involvement, both in what's happening now, negotiating with Hamas, but also some solution after this conflict is uh, over? Sure. So I think there's a couple different facets to this. One is, again, the short term, trying to get other Arab states to also back this idea of humanitarian pause. Most uh, leaders are very forthright about calling for a full ceasefire. So uh, Blinken was trying to get some space there, as well as just keeping diplomatic channels open. The second was really in terms of uh, trying to keep the conflict contained and trying to avoid flare-ups in other Arab countries and in other areas, especially like Iraq, where U.S. Uh, troops are, are stationed and where they're Iranian and proxy groups operating. So trying to um, kind of quell any potential um, flare-ups and just further dispersal of this conflict. And the third, as you mentioned, Lisa, is again trying to look ahead to what that end game might be and what the role of Arab states might be within that. Again, would Arab states be part of some kind of multinational, um, you know, a transitional um, uh, authority or force or something like that? Again, right now, I think most Arab leaders are um, reading the room pretty clearly with their own populations who are very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause and are not going to stick out their neck too far for um, really what the U.S. is pushing for. Um, but at the same time, you know, work quite closely with the U.S. and some some of these states with, with Israel as well. And so needing to kind, kind of find that middle ground. So a lot of diplomacy happening that I think will be just continuing uh, wholeheartedly over these next couple of days. Has President Biden lost the room with his own party at this point, given his approach on this conflict? 
I would say it's very clear that the Democrats have a lot of internal divisions over this conflict. And uh, this isn't new to Biden. And I think he knew with an issue as difficult as Israel-Palestine, you are probably never going to please everyone, especially in a party like the Democrats, which are pretty split on this issue now. He's getting a lot of very vocal um, criticism from uh, from many on the left, from many progressives, and from many on the pro-Palestine side. Um, but I think he's also getting a lot of support from more traditional um, liberal Democrats who appreciate the solidarity that he's shown towards Israel. So in some ways, again, it's a, you're not going to please everyone. And again, right now, the U.S. is trying to find a very difficult middle road and kind of thread this needle between supporting Israel, but also trying to minimize casualties and think ahead to what might be next and what might be best for the region. It's going to be incredibly difficult for the president going into next year, Julie. Just to finish on that poll from the New York Times over the weekend, big leads for the former president, Donald Trump, in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, a lead in Pennsylvania as well. Julie, your thoughts on that as it came out over the weekend? Yeah, this is going to be a big wake-up call for Democrats and for the Biden campaign. We've been seeing these neck-and-neck neck numbers for Biden and Trump for quite a while, but to really drill down to the six swing states and see that five out of the six Trump is leading with less than a year until the elections is quite notable. And again, this is a little bit different than past elections because both of these both of these men are known quantities. Everyone and someone like Trump, everything is out there already. So I, I don't see a lot of this necessarily changing. Um, obviously, polls a year out are a year out. Um, but I think for Democrats who thought, you know, Trump was going to be an easy target or something like that, um, it's clear that Biden has a lot of work to do. And uh, that's, you know, it's going to be challenging for him to keep his coalition together. So I think we'll see some different strategies emerging pretty soon. Hey, Judy, thank you. Judy Norman there of the USA Center on US politics. Thank you. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Joining us now, I'm so glad to say, is Ashley Allen, Corporate Credit Research Analyst at Franklin Templeton, who can weigh in maybe on Birkenstocks. But more importantly, thank you so much for being here, because to me, the big question really is how resilient is a consumer after people have been saying that they're running out of their savings Mm -hmm. month after year after month? Have we reached a point where you actually are seeing evidence of that? Maybe. And I think it's been maybe for a few months, to be fair. But... I think we find ourselves in a really interesting um, situation right now, especially following 3Q earnings. We just heard from a handful of staples companies, from restaurants. Um, consumers are still spending, especially on some things that they'll want to indulge in, whether it's coffee, sweet treats in the grocery store. Um, you know, So the, the stata is backward looking, so we have to keep that in mind. But up until this point, again, resilient has been the word that economists have said over and over, 
they're still showing up to spend on the things that make them feel good. How much in some of the earning calls that you've been tracking and just some of the communication that you've had with corporate officers about what they see going forward, how much do they see this continuing in a durable fashion just based on how much wages are increasing and the fact that the labor market is strong? I don't think it's durable, at least at the same level that we have sustained thus far. A lot of the resilience that we've seen on the top line has been driven by price. Volumes, you know, let's call them flat, plus or minus, um, on, on either side, um, both in kind of uh, the, the restaurant space, but also in staples, if you think about the, the, the CPG companies and the grocery store. Volumes have kind of flatlined. So where they can, consumers have technically been pulling back. From a volume perspective, they're consuming less. Companies have just realized that they can still benefit from taking price that likely can't continue forever going forward. Well, a lot of people argue that a lot of the uh, household balance sheets look pretty good. They do. So if people want to lever up to get a latte, a double, you know, mochaccino, they can do that. Is that what we're actually seeing, that people are just continuing with indulgences but levering up to do so? Potentially. I don't necessarily, <laughs> it's always a maybe, right? Uh, I don't necessarily think that they're leveraging up to buy their, their latte, but I think if you have to look at the bigger picture macro, if you think about millennials, broadly speaking, who maybe are waiting to buy their first home, if you can't do that right now, I would argue that you know spending seven bucks on a coffee isn't going to um, impact your ability to buy a home the same way the Fed would in regards to their rate policy. So I think from a consumer perspective, it's less so about them leveraging up, but a bit, a bit more about the bigger macro picture, what they are spending on, um, and how they're supported by jobs, to be frank as well. So as an investor, do you recommend then consumer discretionaries that are the small luxuries in life that people seem pretty committed to? Yes, yeah, so there is something called the lipstick effect, which we've seen before, uh, specifically you know, in regards to beauty, where women will still spend on small luxuries to make themselves feel good during times of economic stress. I think that same um, the pattern or thesis could easily be applied to sweet treats, uh, so think about, you know, Oreos or cookies uh, that, that we like as well, um, as well as just uh, the occasional splurge in regards to dining out. And whether that's at a you know, full price restaurant, maybe you're okay spending you know, 20 bucks on your, your fast food meal that, that one time, they will indulge, um, especially during times of economic stress. Do you buy the holozempic argument? Not yet. <laughs> it's a TBD. I do think you know, these drugs are really powerful for the individuals that they were originally designed to help, maybe those with type 2 diabetes or who are um, severely over, overweight and obese. Um, but consumer habits really die hard. Uh, and I think that it might take more than Ozempic, at least in its current form, to, to change those patterns. So zooming out, we were just speaking with Veronica Clark over at Citigroup, and she was talking about how they expect a soft patch now and then a reacceleration in inflation because a lot of consumers just keep accepting prices uh, where they are. Do you agree with that, just based on sort of a, a company-specific kind of analysis? I think that if consumers if the, can keep their wage gains that we've seen recently, if, they can, if those can be persistent, um, there's a good chance that they will continue to accept the price gains. I think it's a, it's a matter of who's going to blink first. Is it the consumers or is it going to be the corporations in regards to pulling back on price to drive volumes? Or are consumers finally going to reach a point uh, where they say, hey, you know what? I don't want to spend six bucks on a box of cereal anymore. I don't want to buy that $7 coffee. But as long as they're supported by jobs and some wage gains, I think, uh, you know, 
they'll continue to spend. Which raises this question when you talk to corporate executives and they can pass along these costs, are they then hiring more people? No, because at the end of the day, corporates are also responding to markets, broadly speaking. Um, they're trying to recover the margin that they lost um, over the past 18 months or so when inflation and input costs really got out of control. Margins became compressed at that time. Profitability was hammered. They've benefited these past few quarters from those price increases in conjunction with falling input costs. Now, to be fair, those costs haven't completely uh, reverted, but profitability has been strong from them. And for the most part, this is very idiosyncratic, but companies have been rewarded when their bottom lines, of course, um, have expanded or reverted to pre-pandemic levels. So, so just zooming out, to wrap this all up, I guess there's this question of whether some of the legacy retail companies and whether the legacy service companies mm -hmm. can continue to operate and, and thrive based on their capital structures and a borrowing cost that was a lot lower from another era that they were going to have to refinance at a higher rate, yes. whether they are still credible companies to invest in in a current environment. Are you basically saying that yes, because they're able to pass along those costs to consumers that have continued to really go for uh, the products that they're selling? Yes, they've been able to pass along the cost, but, but the maturity wall, broadly speaking, has been pushed out for several corporates, including those um, in retail in discretionary names. And so, you know, they have balance sheets these days in the cash flow to support, um, you know, the interest expense that they have now. In three or four years, when their maturity wall comes due, we'll see where we are and we can address it at that time. But at the moment, balance sheets are strong, the cash is coming in, they can make their payments, um, and they're passing along those higher prices. What are the strongest segments of retail right now? It's oh, a great question. Um, broadly speaking, uh, beauty is, uh, is a segment that's continuing to do well. Historically, pet has been a segment that's been strong, um, but we have seen some weakening there. It's probably a bit of a post-pandemic trend that's uh, reversing. But um, <laughs> People are sick of spending their entire paycheck on uh, Fido. Ashley Allen, thank you so much of uh, Franklin Templeton. We really appreciate that. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.